Let's do that. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 10 and read through verse 15. Um, we have some, some strange grammar. You know, Paul's hard to read. He's not, he's, he's, his sentences are just difficult. Um, but we have some, some major themes here that are easy for anyone to receive. We see in this passage that Paul is compelled by the love of Christ. And that he has been saved, as we have been, from a selfishness and to a life of meaning and purpose. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, I'll read this passage for you. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God. And I also trust are well known in your consciences, for we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should, no lo should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Jesus, you have died for us. You have risen with us, and we offer you our lives. We pray that we would be walking in this freedom of no longer living for ourselves, but instead for you, the one who died for us. We pray that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that this knowledge would compel us, that this would be a compelling love where we would be able to be your hands and feet and your ambassadors in this world, where we would live uh, seeking holiness, seeking Christ, marching towards heaven, uh, unafraid of the judgment seat of Christ, but living in light of that long eternity. We pray that you would anoint our ears so we can receive what the Spirit would say to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Your life has a purpose and you're not it. Uh, that's kind of what Paul is, is inviting the church into. He's saying, yeah, this is important. Your life has, has a point. It, you, there's a reason for this life. Even all your sufferings can find meaning. Even the decaying of your body and the, the difficulty of persecution, all of this can have deep meaning. And the meaning at the end of the day is not you. <laughs> You're not the glory. You're the clay pot that holds treasure inside. Um, heaven is real, he says. I'm living in light of, of eternity. There is a judgment day for every person who has ever lived, and we need to live accordingly. These things, this awareness of judgment that's coming, and this awareness of the deep love of Christ that, that prevents us from living normal, me-centered lives, that's kind of the gist of this passage. In this very personal letter to the Corinthians, Paul offers a glimpse into his own life which is a life that we are to imitate as he imitates Christ. And there's these two realities that lead Paul to live uh, a, a selfless, mission-focused, holy life. Um, the, right before this verse, or the verse we started in, in verse 9 of chapter 5, Paul sa said that it was his goal, his aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him, to God. 
says, that's my goal. Whether I'm here, whether I'm there, whether I'm dead, whether I'm alive, my goal is to please the Lord. And there's these two things in our text that move him towards this goal. First, it's the judgment seat of Christ. And second, it's the love of Christ. These things move Paul and, and require him to live a certain way. And so as we grow in our awareness of both of these things, our lives also will be funneled in towards this purpose of Christ, the call, the upward call of Christ, what Paul says, how Paul says it. In verse 10, he says, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And knowing the terror or fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul's enthusiasm for evangelism and for encouraging the churches to live well, uh, encouraging the churches towards holiness and towards Christ was based on his knowledge of a coming judgment. And it is the love of Christ that compels him, verse 14, to live for Christ rather than living selfishly, rather than living for himself. Now, unfortunately, I think we'll, we would all agree that these two truths are easily forgotten or ignored. Um, we don't want to think of any kind of judgment seat. Uh, we don't think of the judgment seat of Christ as often as we probably should. We might assume that we that the love of Christ is something we would think more about, but we probably need to be honest with ourselves and recognize that the thoughts we have about the love of Christ are not often compelling. They're not, it's not an awareness of the love of Christ that forces us into action as it should. Too often the love of Christ or our maybe watered down idea of it is a thing that convinces us to sit down, take it easy, and then maybe say thank you. But for Paul, it was the love of Christ that compelled him and convinced him to examine his life and say, I absolutely cannot live selfishly anymore. I cannot continue in this existence if I am the end and the purpose of this existence. I can't do it. How could I possibly think to find purpose anywhere other than living for the one who died for my sins, forgave my sins, purchased me with his own blood and rose again? Since he's done that, I can't live anymore for myself. I'm his, not just by right of creation, but by right of redemption. He has purchased me with his blood. I'm his. So this section of scripture we're in is kind of about, well, I guess it's all about this refocusing, this realigning of our priorities, our, the, the change in our perspective that must take place from a me-centered or even we-centered to a Christ-centered, gospel-centered, compelling love of Christ that pushes us towards mission. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the treasures, uh, the treasure that is contained in earthen vessels. That's from chapter four. And last week, Paul compared this mortal earthly life with a tent that is wearing out and will one day be taken down and traded for a house. And he wrote in chapter four that at the end that we don't look at things that are seen, but at things that are unseen because the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And we've, we've been reading this since, uh, for the last several weeks that there's, you know, an outer man and an inner man. And, and this comparison between things of earth and things of heaven has been going on through chapter four, then chapter five. It's become clear that it's not as simple as some would have it. It's not just flesh versus spirit. It's not just this life doesn't matter because the real one's coming or this world doesn't matter because it's all going to burn up. Uh, as Paul is prioritizing this heavenly perspective, he's not denigrating this life or this body 
uh, or our material existence or anything like that, but rather he's putting it in its place as a servant to a better master and not the master itself. So it's not a matter of destroying the flesh or denying all the trappings of this world and becoming Buddhist monks or something. It's, it's a matter of recognizing that the life of the flesh, this life that we're in right now, that we're living in, it isn't for itself. It isn't for the flesh. The earthen vessels that we are aren't for decoration. They're to store heavenly treasures, eternal treasures. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 2, verse 20. It's a verse you're familiar with, I'm sure. He says, For the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The life of the flesh, it's not destroyed or criticized or discarded or put away or, or, or even you know, denigrated. It's put to service. It's put to use. The life of the flesh, the outward man, the tent, the jar of clay, whatever the metaphor is that, that we use to describe this life, rather than being seen as worthless or pointless, it's instead given ultimate worth even while it decays. And so we do not lose heart because it is in this mortal life that we make known the heavenly glories of Christ. When you live for Christ, life matters more than you could imagine. When you realize that your decaying bodies, your temporary bodies, the kind that get sick and wear out and die, and you make mistakes in this life, and all, all those, those weak things, this is the life for evangelism. You don't get to do that in heaven. This is the life for storing these eternal treasures. You know, this, this is the tent that is sealed with the Holy Spirit as a down payment for eternal treasures to come. I make such a big deal out of this because there is a tendency and has been since the earliest days of the church to draw this very fat line dividing the secular from the sacred which has resulted in many people looking at the things of this world that God has called good as things that are really only here as a holding place until it all burns up and we get to go to heaven. Um, there, have, there have been ages in history where many have believed that the human body is seen as a necessary evil rather than a thing that, as Paul wrote in chapter 4, a thing that can manifest the life and death of Christ and is therefore part of God's plan to literally save the world. So in, the, in that kind of dualist Star Wars viewpoint where there's good and evil and light and dark and flesh versus spirit, work was divided into either sacred or worldly. There's a religious life, and then there was the rest of that unholy stuff that God doesn't really care about, but some people have to do, I guess. That's a bad way of, of thinking, okay? But it has a way of sticking around. So we want to get this clear. The point in all this is not to do away with this physical life or this temporary life just so we can fast and pray and then finally go to heaven. The goal isn't to stop living here so we can start living there. The goal is to be compelled by the love of Christ to live this life well, not for the flesh, but in faith. The goal is to be compelled by the love of Christ to live not for yourself, but for him who died for you. We are to see our lives here and our work here not as an embarrassing necessity or as the work of an enemy or as a necessary evil, and certainly not at the other end of the spectrum as an end to itself. Well, I live here for me so that I can have a good time. We don't believe any of that. Uh, we believe that our lives and our work and our bodies 
are things that exist to bring glory to God. And as things that exist to bring about the kingdom of God, as things that exist to serve Christ who died for us. Do you see the difference? There's the misunderstanding on the one hand that the body doesn't matter, the worldly life is inferior, or equally bad and probably more common, that the body is all that matters, that this life is all there is, and that, that's the materialist view, which that, that anti-body super-spiritualism is probably a reaction because that's how pendulums work. But the gospel and the resurrection itself and all that Paul is, is courageously preaching about now, about heaven that's coming and even a judgment that's coming, the gospel is a repudiation of both of those extremes, and it corrects these opposites by being more extreme in either direction. We don't just say the flesh, we say the flesh is valuable and we crucify it. That's a definitely a Pauline thing. We're like, uh, what? You know, it's more, we crucify the flesh. We say, I die daily. And at the same time, we say it's in this bodily existence that the glories of Christ are known. And we move forward in confident faith that the things of this life will be elevated to heavenly status. And the life we lead now, rather than being extinguished upon death, actually come into its own and is, are converted into eternal material. As Paul says, I don't look forward to being unclothed, but further clothed. I don't want less life. I want more of it. Or to put it in another way, which Paul does in verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I think Paul is very intentional about using the word body because that artificial line between spiritual and physical, it's getting more and more difficult to determine in Paul's writings. The things done in the body will be received at the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, Revelation speaks of this, Revelation 14, verse 13, it talks of the death of the saints, and it says, they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. It's their works that follow them, not their faith. It's, it's the things that are done in the body. We make a big deal about saying you can't take it with you. And when people talk about that, of course, they're talking about the stuff, right? Coffins aren't filled with cash. We all agree on that. But there's, there's a more sobering truth. You will take it with you. Has anyone told you that? Not the stuff, but the actions, the things that are done in the body will be received by everyone at the judgment seat of Christ. The things of this life, whether good or bad, will follow you. Romans, 11, Romans 14, verse 12 says, So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. And on accounting day, the times we've said things like, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, as James says, that will account for much. That's the stuff of wood, hay, and stubble, and it gets burned away. Now, Paul's talked about all of this in 1 Corinthians, right? He's looping around. He's reminding of people things, of things he's already wrote to them about that wood, hay, and stubble line, Paul wrote it. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's when he's telling the church that they are fellow workers with him, that we're building the church together, that you are in ministry. That's what he's telling the Corinthians. And he says, as you're constructing the church of which you are a part, you need to, you need to take care. You need to be, be serious. You need to pay attention. Paul says, let each one take heed how he builds and then he goes on in 1 Corinthians 3, and I'm going to read you this passage as a reminder. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 12, he says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day, capital D, will declare it. 
because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, isn't this exactly what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 5? Isn't this the truth that he has before his mind, urging them on to per, or persuading as many as possible? He's thinking of this in verse 11. He says, therefore, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. It is this judgment seat of Christ that compels Paul to persuade people to follow Christ. Now, when you read this sentence, you think of evangelism, for sure. Persuading men to follow Jesus so they don't go to hell. That's where our brains go first. That's not a, that's not a bad route for your mind to follow in, the, in this passage. Certainly, knowing that each one will have to give an account. How can we not realize the importance of preaching the message of repentance and a call to trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins? Yes, and Paul, Paul was aware of that. He was an evangelist. But evangelism is not the only context for this letter, is it? Paul's been addressing people that he calls saints. He's been talking to people that are part of the church. He says, you are a member of the body of Christ. Paul's been persuading for several pages now, and he writes persuasive letters to other churches too. Uh, you could assume that there would be some unbelievers who heard this letter read, but mostly it's directed to Christians, and Paul is persuading them. You can look ahead and see how this chapter ends where Paul writes in verse 20, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That sounds like persuading. He's persuading men. And if we take 1 Corinthians 3 as our cross-reference about wood, hay, and straw, and the day declaring the works, that's not talking about a judgment of unbelievers. It does not seem that Paul is talking to people about the dividing of sheep and goats, left and right, heaven and hell. He's talking to saints. He's talking to members of the body of Christ, and he's addressing how they are building the church, how they are fulfilling the ministry that Christ has entrusted to them. He says there will be a judgment seat. You will have to give an account. Your works will be judged. Many of them will have all they've ever done mercifully burned up in front of them. 1 Corinthians 3.15, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Paul's talking to Christians, just like me. Just, and, and, and he's aware of a judgment of believers like the Corinthians, and knowing the weight, the majesty, what he says, even the terror, the heat of the fire of the Lord, he is committed to persuading Christians to pursue the upward call of Christ to live in holiness, to walk close to the Lord, not to live for themselves. They've been saved from that. Because he knows, Paul knows, it's the life that's lived entirely for self. That's the wood, hay, and stubble. That's the stuff that's going to be burned away. Heaven is for you. It's not about you. <laughs> the, the clay vessel that is confused about where it gets its worth will be in for a rude awakening when it meets the potter. So Paul persuades men. He persuades the lost to find their hope in the shepherd of lost souls. And he persuades the church the same thing, knowing that the master of the house is returning and the stewards of the house who have been entrusted with riches will have to give an account. Knowing that, Paul persuades men to invest well. Use your life for something. So he persuades men. And then he says, I don't have to persuade God though. He says, We're, we are well known to God. 
That word but, but we are well known to God, could be used to contrast this knowledge of God either to the word terror or the word persuade. Uh, he knows he doesn't need to persuade the Lord. And while he knows the terror of the Lord, he, is also, he also knows the, that, that God knows him well. And this gives him all the confidence needed. Um, confidence is something we know Paul has. He's been very bold about proclaiming his confidence in this book. He said in verse 6, we are always confident. He's confident because he knows that God knows him and loves him. And he says, and that love of Christ compels me. He encourages the Corinthians to know him as well. He says, I also trust that we are well known in your consciences. It's like he's kind of saying, and really, you should know me well enough by now to where I don't need to persuade you either. Even though it's my call to persuade men to follow God, I don't need to persuade you of the, the qualifications of my ministry or where my heart is in all of this or why I'm doing what I do. In verse 12, he says, for we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. I think boasting in appearance might be some more of that wood, hay, and stubble. Hopefully you notice the word commend there. Uh, and if you've, you've been following through the other sermons in 2 Corinthians, you know this is a, a word that's shown up before. And at this point, while the Corinthians are reading this letter, they're really regretting that one time they thought it was a good idea to ask Paul for letters of commendation for himself. Because, man, he is not letting that go, is he? He keeps bringing that up. It was in chapter 3 that he first brought it up, and he's still holding on to that here in chapter 5. He says, we do not commend ourselves again to you. This really gives some context to the last two chapters, at least. Paul's been talking about weakness and suffering and hardship. In other words, the, the Corinthians asked for letters of commendation and saying, well, well, why should we listen to you? Tell us how great you are. And he's like, I will show you how weak I am. Here's my resume. It's just my scars. That's all it is. And he's saying, no, I'm not going to give you the qualifications you think you want. I'm going to show you the real story. And the story, which includes all his talk about suffering and, and now given, is now given depth and purpose in our text when we see the reason for these sufferings. It's this keen awareness of both a coming judgment and the depth of of Christ's love. Paul says, oh, by the way, this letter, this isn't my letter of commendation. Don't think I'm playing your game here. No, you know what I'm doing here? I'm giving you an opportunity to boast on our behalf. If you want anyone to say nice things about me and my missionary team or the apostles, well, you can say it yourself. I'm not going to tell you how great I am. I'm going to tell you how weak I am so that you know how strong Christ is. That's actually kind of the main point of the whole letter. So if you only came for one Sunday, this was a good one. But now he's saying, you know what? Instead of me telling you all the reasons why I'm qualified for this, I've told you how Christ has used my weakness to receive glory unto himself so that you can now say how qualified I am. You can boast in us. He says this is the, a solution to the problem they've been having in Corinth that is that there's, there's people there that boast in appearance and not in heart. God sees the heart and God knew Paul. Paul had opened his heart to the Lord and said, here it is, it's all yours. And Paul is laying it all out in the open now so the churches could see his heart. In appearance, Paul was weak. He knew, he, he knew what he looked like to them. They did too. But in seeing his heart, the heart that knew the nearness of the judgment seat of Christ and the heart that was compelled by the love of Christ, if they could see that in his actions now, in the things done in the body maybe they could better respond to the people that only cared about the image and not the reality. 
And we're familiar with the passage in 1 Samuel 16 that says, The Lord does not see as man does, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Considering appearance without considering the heart is not godly thinking. Considering the image without the reality is short-sighted, and it's how people found it so easy to criticize Paul. He didn't look impressive. It's how they could live without thinking often about the judgment seat of Christ. How they could live with the love of Christ at arm's length, being uncompelled by it. In verse 13, he says, For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. This is a little confusing here. I'll see if I can explain it well. The appearance was that sometimes Paul and those other missionaries that, that he traveled around with were crazy. Just absolutely crazy. Have you ever met a missionary? They're crazy. That's all. That's okay. They, to be beside yourself. It's to be out of your mind. Why would they say that Paul was out of his mind? Because he went straight for danger every time. Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to, they're going to bind you and put you in chains. And Paul says, cool, maybe they'll kill me too. Let's go, I'm late. He says, that's Paul. That's who you read about in the book of Acts. And he says, if you think we're crazy, keep looking. The image of this behavior is revealing a heart that is for God and not for myself. And he says, if we are of sound mind, it's for you. Now, obviously, Paul was not only of sound mind. I'm pretty sure he was a genius. But he says, he's, he wrote in 1 Corinthians, I'm a fool for Christ. I'd rather be a fool. And he preaches against this kind of sophistry or sophistication where the words were there just for the word's sake to make the guy talk and look real smart. And he says, that is not my style. I need to give you the gospel and then you can forget about me as soon as possible. So he says, if, I, if I'm crazy, well, that's just because I'm following God and not my own, my own ego, my own brand. He says, if I make sense, if I sound really good in some of these letters, which he does sometimes, he writes really well. Uh, Romans is a masterpiece. First and second Corinthians, he writes pages and pages and pages more than any other church about the gospel. And it's great. He says, if I'm of sound mind, that's also not to make myself look good. I'm writing to you of a sound mind in order for you, the church, to fall in love with your savior. It, it's not what you see. If, if that's just the appearance, you're missing something. The heart that's behind this is one that is broken for the church, loving the church, serving the church. I'm not acting crazy for me. That's for God. I'm not arguing and preaching and writing these long letters to make myself look smart. I'm doing that for you. Paul is not moved by appearances. He is moved by something more substantial. And he tells us what that is in verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us. Paul was moved to action and moved to holiness by the love of Jesus. It was the love of Christ that was the force behind all his actions, all his ministry, and the hand drawing him forward into the unknown, into churches, into jail, into shipwreck. Having been on the receiving end of so great a love, having had his eyes opened to an infinite capacity of love for the least of the saints and the chief of sinners, Paul cannot live a life that was concerned merely for appearances. He can no longer live a life that's for himself. He cannot remain unmoved or uncompelled. He has been loved, and that changes everything. He has been loved, therefore he lives the way he does. The love of Christ compelled him. Now, of course, what he actually writes is that the love of Christ compels us. He says us there. And throughout the book, he's been including himself either with the other apostles or with the rest of his missionary team, Timothy, Sosthenes, Silvanus, those guys. 
They are compelled by the love of Christ to preach the gospel, to live sacrificially, to build where no man has laid a foundation yet. That's what Paul's doing. He's moved to this ministry by the love of Christ to persuade men to live in the light of eternity and to trade appearances for something much more substantial than things that are only skin deep. But as we look at Paul's personal appeals, when he says, I com- I'm compelled, or we are compelled, or the love of Christ compels us, we have to remember that he's already called this church to imitate him as he imitates Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, which opens up that word us in a wide, inviting way. We are to put ourselves in that category and say the love of Christ compels us as we imitate Paul, who imitates Christ, who is also moved by a heartbroken love to do what he did. We are to be compelled by the love of Christ to no longer live for ourselves. The gospel is meant to be uh, meant to have an effect. <laughs> not just on our minds or our emotions or our souls as these isolated things, but it is to have an effect on the whole of our lives so that we are compelled to live every day a certain way where we're not the center of it anymore. When we hear the first words of John 3.16, for God so loved the world, this ought to move us to be part of the action. We realize, well, I live in the world. That's, That's where I'm from. The world is my hometown. He, he so loved me. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. When I read that he died for all, I see, as Paul sees, that I have died with him that any life I have now is resurrection-based, that he died for me, and the result then is that I now live, uh, the life I live in the flesh, to use Paul's phrase from Galatians 2.20, I should no longer live for myself. If if you ask the question, or you, you ask yourself the question, why did Christ die for the world? I'm sure you'd come up with a good answer. I don't think, without this verse right in front of you, the answer would be that I would no longer live for myself. But that's what the scripture says. Why did Christ die? He died so that you would no longer be trapped in living for yourself. You have something better to live for now. He has saved you from your selfishness. And, and all of this answers this great big question, which I, I, I kind of think the Corinthians may have been asking, which is, why is Paul the way he is? <laughs> Paul, why are you like this? As Christians who are living for the next life, we would be, without the resurrection of all men, the most to be pitied, right? We have death working in us daily. That's what Paul says. Paul describes himself and his missionary team as the scum of the earth and the garbage of the world. That's 1 Corinthians 4.13 in the NIV. Isn't that great? Scum of the earth and the garbage of the world. Why are you living like this? Why are you the way you are? Why do we do this? Because the love of Christ compels us. And the knowledge that Christ died for all, if he died for all, then it doesn't make sense for us to live for anything other than the one who died for us and rose again. No other form of life, no other worldview, no other calling makes any sense anymore. 
if he died for you and rose again. Do you see here that the love of Christ, it's not just it's not just a love of people in general, necessarily. It's not like Paul is saying, Jesus loves them out there and that's important, so I should tell them. That's something, but it's not exactly what Paul is saying. No, this others-focused upward call of Christ that Paul is walking in was not arrived at solely from the consideration of the lost. I don't want to downplay that, so, so stay with me. But he's living this sacrificial life with a full awareness of the coming judgment because he sees the cross as having an ultimate claim on him personally, on his own life. Now, obviously, Paul loved people deeply. He cared for the lost more than we can possibly imagine. He was moved by compassion. But that kind of care will only motivate you for so long. Because as long as you think you're in charge of your life, you won't sacrifice your life all the way for long-term service, for ministry that lasts, for faithfulness to be achieved over the longest of terms, it will be the love of Christ for you that compels you. It will be an awareness of your sins that have been forgiven completely, that compels you to move towards Christ and bringing as many people with you. You will be compelled to that long obedience when you know, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's when you realize that if he died for me, then, then I don't exist without him anymore. I should no longer live for myself. I cannot any longer live for myself. He owns me. I am not my own. That's a gospel truth. I am not my own. I am his we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. When we arrive, you want to say, I'm yours. All I have is yours. All I've done is yours. That fire that burns away the wood, hay, stubble is something that you should look forward to knowing that you don't want anything in your relationship with Christ that isn't all his anyway. I don't want to bring any of that stuff into heaven with me. I don't want to bring the ego and the me-centered and the, the empire building and the, the, the self-branding and all of that. I don't want any of that to, to be with me and Christ. So get rid of it now. When we, when we go before the judgment seat of Christ, we, we want to we realize that all of this life, the things that we do in the body, in this life, the life we live in the flesh, were things that were done in faith. That confident gaze of the soul on a beautiful eternity on the saving power of a God who loves us. We don't want the life we live in the flesh to be spent or rather wasted by only living for ourselves, but rather for our Savior. The selfish things don't make it into heaven. Um, there's a fire that burns that stuff away. The wood, the hay, the straw will include the things that we've done as we live for ourselves rather than building the kingdom of God. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. For Paul and for you, that's part of not living for yourselves. Keeping this truth to yourself and not sharing it is a form of living for yourself. One of the freedoms, one of the greatest freedoms, I would say, you can enjoy as you live for Christ and not yourself is that you don't have to owe anyone any sort of commendation. Paul is living in that, in this verse. You don't have to try to convince the world of how great you are. You can have a good time showing the world how weak you are. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. 
with complete honesty, knowing that Christ gets all the glory, we can live openly, knowing his grace is sufficient, and when we are weak, he is strong. We can have confidence that we are well known to God himself, and so we do not lose heart. The knowledge he has of us is one of love. He loves you. It's not a textbook knowledge. It's a knowledge of a parent for a child, of a lover for the beloved. He knows you in love. This great love that he has shown us completely removes any excuse we could have for continuing on as if we are the end of our own existence, as if we are the end result and the final purpose of our own lives. We are freed from that, the lie that our lives are for themselves. We're redeemed by the death of Christ from a life without purpose and a misguided egotism. Instead, we have what Paul calls the upward call of Christ. A call to live for his glory, dead to self, alive to God, beholding his glory rather than our own, being transformed from glory to glory. That transformation is what we're called to. The, the selfish, now-centered, me-centered life is one of the things we're saved from. When Paul calls us to service, to selflessness, he's calling you into fellowship with Christ where our ultimate purpose is found in his death and our dying with him, in his life and our living with him, in his resurrection and our hope of the same. He, he's call, we are called to fellowship with Christ, to communion with Christ, where the love of Christ compels you to live now in this body, in this life, with all the resources that you've been blessed with, for eternity. In John 10, 10, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. That life he offers, his life that he shares with us, that he is forming in us by his spirit, is experienced by us when we direct our lives towards his goals, towards his glory. When we are moved, not by selfishness, but by his love towards us, his compelling love towards us. Christ loves you deeply. He loves you effectively. Be compelled, then, by the love of Christ. Be compelled to live with him, for him, for the one who died for you and rose again. Please pray with me now. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. We love you to the best of our abilities, as best as we know how, and we thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit that can lead us in, uh, into maturity and, and show us how to love you more, how to serve you more, how to live less for ourselves and more for you in this life with the resources you've given. We pray your blessing on your church, that we would be compelled by the love of Christ, that we would uh, have the knowledge of, of the judgment seat of Christ before our eyes and live accordingly. We thank you for the hope of heaven. We pray that it would always be for our eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Go ahead and stand up. If any of you would like prayer for anything specific, we'd be happy to pray with you after. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.
you are sent.